0: chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. And the message this morning is God's comfort in all circumstances. God's comfort in all circumstances. We've learned that God comforts us in our trials, that God comforts us in our sufferings for Christ, that God comforts us in our times of death in serving Christ. And so he, ser- he comforts us in, in many ways. And to end up this morning, we see that God comforts us in all of our circumstances. Whatever they might be, whatever they might look like, he's there. And he's the God of all comfort and he's the only one who can comfort us the way we need to be comforted. And he knows how to comfort us us because he's experienced all things. in in, In the time that he was on earth and in his ministry, he experienced everything that we could possibly ever experience. But here now, Paul spends more time defending his ministry. Pretty sad that Paul had to defend his ministry because of people who maybe didn't like him or didn't like the way he did things um, because he uh, was he, he had you know such a great ministry and a lot of times I think people are just jealous but these people that that were hounding him you know he had to spend time defending his ministry and again because of the people that he served and it takes up most of this chapter, which also inc- uh, includes a request to the Corinthians for their support, because he was taking care of them. He led them to the Lord. You know, they started the church there in Corinth, and so, you know, he was, he was feeding the Word of God, and yet having these other uh, churches um, or leaders attack him, and so he's asking the Corinthians to, to support him and, and, and to go on living holy lives. Again, as a result of their new birth. And in defending himself, Paul gives us some good instructions on how to serve the Lord. And we always can learn on, on how to better serve the Lord. So we have some good lessons here about Christian service. In chapter uh, 6 through 7, it, 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 those chapters bring a heartfelt ending to Paul's explanation of his ministry. He's told his readers, you know, even though I've had some uh, trials, many trials, in my ministry, I had a victorious ministry. And he said, I had, I had a, 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 a glorious ministry. And I could never think of quitting. He said, even though my enemies have accused me of being in the ministry for my own personal gain... He says, I proved that my ministry was for real, that it was genuine and that it was based solely on my faith in God and for no other reason. He says, all I have to do now is challenge the hearts of the Corinthians and assure them that I love them. And he said, I did this by writing to them the following verses of my letter. So Paul now talks about the Corinthian faithful partnership in the gospel. And also their financial partnership in the gospel. A passage that teaches us about a, lo- a lot about our attitude toward the ministry and money. Which will be covered here in chapter 6. In dealing with the faithful partnership of his converts in the Lord's work, Paul continues trying to get them on board and to educate them. And we're focusing on his tireless effort to recruit all of those who put their trust in Christ to do the work, the great work, of spreading the gospel at all costs. So first of all, we have the call to service. The call to service. And Paul starts by showing us the greatness of the ministry that we have been called to. Let's begin with verse now, verse 1 of chapter 6. And Paul says, we then, as workers together with him, that is Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So before we move ahead, we need to stop here and look back at what Paul has already said. Paul has reminded the Corinthian converts about some of the mysteries and wonders that are waiting for the believer when he dies and when he passes from this life to the next. Paul was not afraid to die. Death wasn't the end of things. It was the door that brought him right into the presence of Christ. And the thought that the Christian will put on the new body, I mean, think of that, and he spoke about that in chapter 5, that we're going to have a new body, and, and, and you know, we're going to just be able to do things we couldn't do here in this body. Our new body is going to be you know, made for the environment uh, that we'll be in in eternity. So Paul is reminding them about these mysteries and wonders that are waiting for them in the next life. So the the thought of this new body that we're going to receive should be enough incentive to live lives acceptable to Jesus in the bodies that we now have. So in connection to our new bodies, Paul reminded his fellow believers about the judgment seat of Christ. That as believers, we will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's not a place that we're going to be judged for our sins. All right? Jesus has been judged for our sins. At that judgment seat, we will be... Christ will, will, will be there rewarded for why we did what we did as Christians. Our motivation for the things that we did. For example, that I did i go into ministry so that i could be recognized and 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 you know be known by people or did i go into ministry because i wanted to further the gospel of Jesus Christ so based on our motivation for the things that we did for being as being a christian we will be rewarded accordingly and uh, but we are saved and, and nothing will prevent that at the judgment seat Uh, Again, it's just going to be rewards uh, for, uh, again, our motivation for what we did, you know, as Christians. So, again, that's what Paul is uh, pointing to here. So, again, it should be that new life in the new body, that should be incentive to live lives acceptable to Jesus while we're in these bodies here. And in in connection to our new bodies, Paul reminded his fellow believers about, the again, the judgment seat of Christ. And the thought of having to give an account of our lives to the Lord Jesus, man, that should even be more incentive to live acceptable lives here for Jesus. Because one day, like I said, we're going to give an account. And it should cause us to be passionate about evangelizing, about sharing the gospel, and about soul winning according to the gifts that God has given us. Knowing, as he said, the terror of the Lord, that should drive us on. Then he told his Christian friends about the moving and motivating force that drove him, which was the love of Christ, that pressed on him on all sides, that he was surrounded by the love of Christ. It was all around him. But there was even more. The believer in Christ is in reality a completely new creature a new creation. The old has passed away and everything has become new. And he lives in a totally new realm, the realm of the Spirit, possessed by the Spirit and to be possessed and controlled only by the Spirit. So we've been totally enveloped in Christ, totally enveloped in Christ. Like Paul said in Acts 17, 28, in Him, that is in Christ, we live and move and have our being. The brand new world and life that Jesus has opened up to us should outshine whatever this world has to offer. This world pales in comparison to what God's kingdom is. It can't even even come close to the kingdom of God. And there's still more. God himself in Christ was busy making reconciliation possible for a world that was at war with him. Man is, an, is in, at enmity with God. And, and again, Christ was busy reconciling uh, uh, the world that was at war with him through the cross of Calvary. That's the great turning point of the world. Calvary. It shows us how far the world's hatred will go. When you look at the cross, that is a picture of how far this world will go in hating Christ. It shows you man at his worst at the cross. But it shows God's best on the cross. How far God will go to show you his love. The world showed man's worst at the cross. Jesus showed his best on the cross. So it's no wonder that Paul himself is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that Paul tells his converts that they've been made <clears throat> ambassadors too. And at last, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be a sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is the road that Paul had been following to get to the conclusion that we are now workers together with Jesus. And he warns the weak believers not to receive the grace of God in vain here in verse 1. In other words, this means to be real. It means to be genuine in coming to Christ. Not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't be empty. Don't be vain. That is, in professing Jesus Christ, which would just make you another Judas Iscariot who faked his interest in Christ and was eternally lost. There's no value, none whatsoever, in a phony profession of faith. The thing that Paul's afraid of is this, that they won't follow God his salvation in Christ to really produce the required fruit of a holy life, a holy walk. A life that properly answers to the death of Christ and that can face the judgment seat without being ashamed. That's why he's saying don't receive the grace of God in vain. He wants them to walk a holy life, a life of Christ. He wants them to be at the judgment seat of Christ without shame rather than losing rewards, gaining rewards. The new relationship with God brought into being by Christ doesn't automatically sustain himself. In other words, when we get saved, that doesn't mean, we, okay, I'm saved, and now I just go about my business like I, I was doing before I got saved. So again, the new relationship with, with God brought into, you know, by Christ, doesn't automatically sustain itself. So Paul is urging them not to receive the grace of God in vain. He says, don't let it go for nothing. Don't let your 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 your, uh, your salvation go for nothing. Don't let it go for anything. Paul said in Philippians 2:13, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure." Notice, we have a part in this salvation. We have a part that, 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 that we are to keep up in this salvation. God, in that, in that scripture in Philippians, it shows that God is at work in us. That's his part. We do all that we can, and he does what we can't do. God gives us some responsibility in this salvation. And we see it pointed out in other places. In Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, he said, wash yourselves. Notice, it doesn't say, God wash you. God, it says, God, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. So again, there's the responsibility of the believer that he has things to do. God has saved me, but I am to keep myself pure. I am to keep myself clean. Also in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul said, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves From all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Warren Wiersbe says, I'm not working for salvation. I'm working from salvation because I'm saved. So again, this working in our salvation, this washing ourselves, cleansing ourselves, keeping ourselves pure. That isn't what saves us. We're doing that because we are saved. Justification and holiness cannot be separated. You know, as a man can't be reconciled with God and live in sin. And there are those who think, well, you know, Jesus died for all my sin. So if I live in it, it's taken care of. No, that's not what it means. We are to be forgiven of our sin and we are to forsake our sin and not live in sin any longer. Forsaking sin is involved in receiving Christ. A.W. Tozer said, a whole generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Jesus Christ without forsaking the world. And we need to remember, the Bible tells us, the world is not your friend. We are living in enemy territory. This is the devil's playground. That's why the Bible says the world is not your friend. John said in 1 John 2:15 and 16, "Do not love the world or the things of the world in the world." He says, "If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of, the, of life is not of the Father but is of the world." Paul never thinks that men can accept one benefit of redemption and reject another. Paul is simply pleading with his readers not to reject so great a salvation. Believers are to be workers with him in bringing the good news to men just as he was a worker with God in bringing people to salvation. Then, after not receiving your gra- uh, the grace of God in vain, he, he next he goes to the, great, uh, the greatness of the message that we have in verse 2. He says, For he says... In in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So this quote here is from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. There's always this degree of urgency when God calls men to salvation. He doesn't say tomorrow. He doesn't say next week. He says now, today. It's urgent. Yesterday is gone forever. Tomorrow may never come. All we have is right now, this moment. Dr. Moody gives a great illust- illustration of, of what Paul was saying, what the Bible says, uh, in an in incident that he experienced. In 1871, Dr. Moody started a series of messages in Chicago. And a lot of people started attending his studies. And on the fifth Sunday night, he preached to the largest congregation he'd ever preached to there in Chicago. And he preached on this text, What shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? And at the end of the service, he didn't ask for people to make a decision for Christ. He said, I want you to take this home with you, and I want you to think about it during the next week. And he said, next Sunday, we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. He thought that was one of the biggest mistakes of his life. Because before that next Sunday came, the great Chicago fire broke out. And when Mr. Moody went home from the service that Sunday night, he could see the glare of the flames over the great city of Chicago. And he knew that it was over for Chicago. At about 1 p.m., the place where he'd been speaking was destroyed. And soon afterwards, his own church was burned down. When he got home, the family went to bed, and within an hour, everyone on his block was told to run for their lives. The fire had leaped across the river and was coming their way. Then on the 22nd anniversary of that great fire, Moody was speaking again to a large group in Chicago. And he said, I've never dared to give an audience a week to think about their salvation since then. If they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. Moody said, I've never seen that congregation since. He said, I've had a hard time keeping back the tears today. I've looked over this audience and not a single one is here that I preached to that night. But I want to tell you a lesson that I learned that night, which I've never forgotten. And that's when I preach, I press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. He said, I'd rather have that right hand cut off than to give an audience now a week to decide what to do with Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul felt. Pontius Pilate never had a better chance to receive Christ, to make a decision for Jesus, than during that trial. Blind Bartimaeus recognized that it was now or never for Jesus to receive him. Jesus was passing by, and he'd never come that way again. Felix thought that he could make a decision for Jesus whenever he wanted, like a lot of people do. He said, go away for now, Paul. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. He never had a more convenient time than that moment. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near always remember the day the devil's favorite day is tomorrow tomorrow because you're not guaranteed tomorrow there's not only the greatness of ministry and the greatness of the message there's also the greatness of the way that we give the message according to verses 3 and 4 paul reminds us that we should not what we should not do and he says give no offense to the ministry look at verse 3 <clears throat> He said, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. The word offense here, it means occasion for stumbling, occasion for stumbling. It means something that might lead others into sin or error. Paul was always so careful in his own ministry that he didn't do anything or give anybody a reason not to believe. And it doesn't take much today, and people are looking for anything, any excuse not to receive Christ, to not believe in Christianity. How many times have you heard somebody, "Oh, I knew a Christian one time. that's why I don't go to church," or they've heard something or they've seen something. Nothing should be done to bring discredit or dishonor on the ministry whether it's you doing it outside or at home or at church. And it's really sad how easily people get offended today. Again, because they're, they're looking for something. And if you look at hard enough for something, you'll see it. They're often so petty that it's laughable. The sorry, the, the, the sad thing is it's not funny. And especially when they use it as an excuse for rejecting Jesus Christ. And sometimes people are offended at something that the preacher said. You know, it, it can be, you know, we can be talking about the rapture. And, and, well, because, you know, some people believe it's a, a pre, pre-trib rapture, a mid-trib, and a post-trib. Well, that is not an essential of the faith. That isn't something that, that, that we must depend upon for salvation. It's something we'll all find out when it happens. Then we'll see who is right. And then it won't matter. But we make such a big deal out of little things. Once saved, always saved. Another thing that's not essential for the faith. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll teach it and, and why we believe it. And, and, you know, and then it's up to you to make up your own mind. But again, it's not an essential of the faith. The gifts of the Spirit. Some people they are there for today. Some people say they're of the devil. Which, to me, borderline's blasphemy when you're talking about the Holy Spirit. And some people say, hey, if you don't use the King James Bible, man, you're oh, you're not using the true word of God. And they'll get hung up on these things and they'll split up and, and you know, and, and it's sad. But again, so again, we, you know, these things are not, again, essentials of the faith. But again, people will get stuck up, stuck on them and, and, and just just create their own thoughts and ideas on them and it's sad. Paul reminds us of what we should say. Look at the first part of verse 4. But in all things, know that we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And the idea is that Paul wanted to show and verify his genuineness as God's ambassador. Because it seems that he was still being bashed by his Jewish enemies at Corinth, insinuating that he wasn't an authorized apostle at all, that he wasn't the real thing. Why? Why? Because he didn't have letters of of commendation like they had. You know, which were documents that were signed by James and the leaders of the mother church in Jerusalem. Which those letters to them authenticated. Oh, I've got a letter from the church in Jerusalem that makes me a real apostle. Paul didn't have those papers. He didn't carry those papers. He didn't need them. So what if he didn't have letters of recommendation? First of all, they were worldly documents. And the Corinthians shouldn't be influenced by them. What you should be influenced by is the person's life. Does he live the life that he professes? Paul didn't need any man's references or endorsements. Your life should be your endorsement. It should say it all. Paul had been called to the ministry by the Lord Jesus Christ, not sent there or not called by men or some committee. He was personally called by the Lord Jesus Christ. He had the highest and better credentials. Paul had the signs of an apostle. And to back him up were the sufferings that he endured for the cause of Christ. Paul had his credentials written in his own blood and body. In Galatians 6, 17, Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. How many of them who were harassing Paul because he didn't have a letter of recommendation, how many of them could say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ? All Paul had to do was lift up his shirt and say, look at my back. He had the scars of the beatings and the lashings that he experienced. In preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And living for Christ. That's what Paul could say. Here's my endorsement. Show me yours. Paul had proved himself to be a genuine apostle. By the very things that he went through. In order to bring the message of salvation. To one and all. Then there was what we should expect. Look at the second part of verse 4. Well, let's go ahead and just start with verse 4 again. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Notice, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, and in distresses. Paul now lists some of the characteristics of his ministry. Let's see. Uh, The first thing that is mentioned was patience. And man, a lot of patience is needed in the ministry. All, All the things that Paul suffered as a Christian and an apostle had taught him patience. Patience. Paul proved that he was a true minister of the gospel by the way he accepted suffering and by his unswerving loyalty to the Lord, no matter what happened to him. And then he goes on next. He says there was tribulations after the patience. The word tribulations carries the idea of pressure and has to do with things that that burdens one's spirit, like war and need and pain. Then there were the needs that followed the tribulations. Paul was a poor man. And he often knew what it meant to be in need. And Paul worked for himself. He worked for a living with his own hands to support himself and to give to those who needed him. To to help him get out the gospel. The word that he uses here with the Corinthians suggests he would get to a point where a person is driven into a corner. And he doesn't know what to do or or how to bear under the load. Paul experienced those things. Paul often knew what it was to be needy. And in his last letter, Paul was in a Roman prison expecting execution. He just didn't know when. He thought he was going to be executed. Winter was coming. Paul was cold. His friends had abandoned him. So he writes to Timothy and he pleads with Timothy. He says, come and see me, Timothy. And he said, it's winter now. Please bring my cloak. You see, it was the cry of a man who had been driven to the wall. Couldn't go any further. There were also the pressure in distresses, he says here. Distresses. The word distresses carries the idea of extreme pressure. It literally means narrowness of space. It has the idea of torment. These pressures can drive a person to desperation. But the thing is, Paul had learned how to change those persecutions, miseries, and pressures into the patience of Christ. Paul said in Philippians 4.10-13, thir- he said, And I have learned, and that's the key, learned. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content." I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned. Again, twice mentioned learn. He says, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, how did he learn? Through those tough times that he experienced. That's how we learn the Word of God is true. That's how we learn that the promises of God are true. That's how we learn that God can take care of me through difficult times. If I didn't have those difficult times, how would I know that God could take care of me? How would I know that He can solve my problem? How would I know that the Word of God is true? How could I trust in the Word of God? That's why we are to look at our afflictions with joy. Because you know what? God is teaching me something. He wants to show me something. He wants me to to see his faithfulness. He wants me to see his goodness and his power. The secret was the love of Jesus that compelled Paul and the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled him to do those things. Look at verse 5 now. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, here Paul bluntly and honestly calls us to suffer. He bluntly and honestly calls us to suffering. The Christian life isn't always a life of ease. We are constantly warned about the sufferings that is part of the Christian life. He said in stripes he suffered. Stripes consisted of 40 lashes with a rod. And then Paul lists the other things that he experienced in his ministry that few men have experienced today, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, fastings, which was starving. Paul experienced all of those things. And then he goes on to give some more characteristics of the ministry, the way that we should face suffering in verses 6 through 7. Let's read 6 through 7 now. He says, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, and on the right hand and on the left. And how should we suffer some of these things? In purity. In other words, it's important that a minister be pure in his life. Characteristics in the ministry. Lacking purity is one of the things that hits ministries and hurts the ministry today. And it's always a horrible thing, a terrible thing, when a minister is found guilty of immorality and impurity. And unfortunately, we're hearing more and more of that. He says knowledge. The ministry is, to, again, one of the characteristics of the ministry is, is by knowledge. And I think this is more than the knowledge of the Word of God. A minister of the, word of, God, of, the, of the Word of God should know many things and he should keep himself up to date of the times in which he lives. By long-suffering he should live. Long-suffering comes up again here. By kindness. And again, how people long to have leaders who have a tender, kindly interest in them. And then he said in verse 6-7, through seven, by the Holy Spirit. You know, we need... Ministers, uh, servants, we need the Holy Spirit. To preach without the Holy Spirit leading and guiding, woe is him. An effective ministry can only be by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, by sincere love. Genuine love is so desperately needed today. Just look around this world right now. We don't need pious pretenders. Going around quoting godly cliches. We don't need phony professors of faith who tell you how much they love you and then turn around and gossip about you. We need real, genuine love. We need the love that the Holy Spirit puts into our hearts. And then he said, By the word of truth, by the word of truth, we do ministry. The word of truth means that a preacher should know his Bible and that he should preach by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is possible only when a pastor spends time alone with God before he steps into the pulpit. And then he said, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. This means right living in all areas. Right living in all areas. Now Paul tells us how to fight suffering. Notice verses 8 through 10 now. Verses 8 through 10. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So Paul listed a series of contradictions here. Because he knew that not everybody really understood him and his ministry. His enemies talked bad about him. They said he was dishonorable and he was a liar. But God gave a good report of Paul as a man who God honored and who was true. Paul was well known. At the same time, he wasn't known. What price price Paul paid to be a faithful minister? Suffering. just Harassment by those who came against him. And yet how little the Corinthians really appreciated all that Paul did for them. They brought him sorrow. And yet he was always rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Paul became poor that he might become rich. That they might become rich. The word poor means the complete destitution of a beggar. Was Paul wrong to ask for their appreciation? No, he was, it wasn't. Churches are likely to take for granted the sacrificial ministry of their leaders, their missionaries, their servants, their faithful church officers. Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't asking to be praised. He wasn't, asked to be, he wasn't asking them to pat him on the back. Just, to, to again, to show care and, and again, that, that they recognized that, that Paul was, was, was working with them and, to, and was serving them. Paul wasn't asking to be praised, nor should we ask to be praised. But he was reminding his friends in Corinth that his ministry to them, what he had done, had cost him dearly. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we ask you to show your appreciation for those leaders who work among you and instruct you. We ask you to love them and think very highly of them because of the work they are doing and live in peace with each other. What he's saying is that faithful servants are to be commended. He said highly esteemed, which means appreciated, not praised, just appreciated. When he spoke of Epaphroditus, Paul said in Philippians 2.29, Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. So in all of his personal testimony, Paul was disproving the hateful and lying accusations that these Judaizers were making against him. You know, how much they had suffered for the people at Corinth. What price did they pay for their ministry? Well, like most cultists today, these false teachers stole another man's converts. That's what these men were doing. Who would go and, and come against Paul and harass him and, and say, Well, he doesn't have the recommendations, the commendations that we have. He doesn't have permission from their, uh, the mother church. And, and that's why they were saying, You know, you guys follow us. Paul, Paul's, Paul's nobody. They, you see, they didn't seek to win the lost. They went out there telling people, hey, you know, come on, you guys. Paul, he's he's just, he's not for real. They just went and were, were building on another man's foundation. And I remember in the early days of Calvary Chapel, West Covina, you know, a great, uh, great work of God was, being, was, was working there. And, 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 you know, the parking lot, you know, was filled with cars. And we used to have to park down the street, down the block a couple of blocks, and, and, and walk over there, and, and it would be crowded, and you'd have to stand up in the back, and, and, and people recognized the work that was going on there. And then one day the ushers caught some, some other church planting their church flyers on the windshield of, of the cars there at Calvary Chapel. Trying to get other people to go to their church. Building upon another man's foundation. That's not the way God works. And then and other churches building churches next to a big church because they figure, well, we'll get some of those people to come over. Hey, like Pastor Chuck Toss, hey, go far away. Go far away. Don't build upon another man's foundation. Let it be a work of God, a move of God. And so that's what we see these guys doing here with Paul. Oh, he's, no, he's not for real. He doesn't have the commendations from the mother church. And, and so follow us. And again, so Paul was, was trying to show the Corinthians, again, what he had gone through. And building that church and and feeding the sheep and taking care of these and protecting them from these kind of uh, phony leaders. And just trying to get them to appreciate what was done for them. It's well been said, if you want to find gratitude, look in the dictionary. Are we showing gratitude to those who have ministered to us? Those that that serve us. And they're not looking for it, but again. They're doing it because they love the Lord and they love the sheep. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. We thank you so much. That, Father, we have the right attitude, God. We want to have the right attitude, Lord. And help us to learn from the scriptures, Lord. What Paul was teaching here, Lord. That let our lives, Father, be the mark of ministry, God. Let us have in our bodies the mark of the ministry. Not necessarily, in our case, the the marks of the whip, Lord. Lord just the dedication and, God, the service that we get to do, God. Because we love you because of what you've done for us, God. And, Lord, let us love him from Paul, too. That the gospel... We can't wait on on getting out the gospel, Lord. But that we need to bring it to people and bring it to them right away. Because tomorrow may never come. And yesterday is gone forever. Now is the time. Today is the day for salvation. And in listening to Paul's message and the moving of the Holy Spirit. If there's anyone here this morning or that may be watching at home as we live stream the service there. If there's anyone here this morning that wants to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, just lift up your hand and and then you can put it back down. Anybody at all. Holy Spirit has moved in your heart and you recognize your need for Christ today Father we thank you so much for your love and your grace God we would never take it for granted Lord we thank you so much Lord again for what you've done here and God with, with your people Lord with each one of us God in our salvation and God keep us Keep us, Lord. Keep us to the end, Father. Jesus said, those who endure to the end shall be saved. And again, that is the evidence that we are saved, Lord. As Paul said, suffering and going through all of these difficult times, Father. The trials and the tribulations and the afflictions, God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you again for your goodness, for taking care of us. Father, so faithful, so, just so faithful. Your promises are are true. Your word is true, God. You never let us down. And so we thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.